Coming right up, how the West really lost God, a discussion with the renowned scholar Mary Aberstadt. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to the American scholar and writer Mary Aberstadt. Some of you might remember we've had her on the show once before to talk about her most recent book, uh, which is called Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. It's an absolutely must-read book for any of you who haven't yet picked it up. You can check out uh, some of her other books at Mary Aberstadt. Com. Today, I wanted to discuss uh, her book from 2013, How the West Really Lost God, because she really explains in this book how our traditional way of viewing how the West became a secular nation, or a secular civilization, pardon me, our conventional view is wrong. And she came to this conclusion by carefully examining the history, the literature, the data, and she comes out with a, a brilliant and profound theory that has a lot of implications even for discussions inside American conservatism today and for how we actually uh, look at American politics. And so I asked her, uh, Mary, to come on the show to have a discussion about how the West really lost God, and this is that conversation. One of the most interesting things um, about your research, the one that I wanted to get in with you today, was on how the West really lost God. I found this book... Mm-hmm. incredibly fascinating. It wasn't your first book that I read. I just started going back through some of your books. And what I found really interesting was that it, it gets at something that like, once you understand the theory, it explains a lot of things. Because the conventional story for how the West lost God is that we secularized and then the families fell apart. Um, of course, there's more to it than that, but just sort of simply put. But you basically explain how that's not the real story once you look at the data and look at the history. So I guess to start off, um, what was your theory for how the West really lost God? So in How the West Really Lost God, I looked at the conventional explanations for secularization. And I found them all wanting in one way or another. So, for example... There is an explanation according to which the West lost God after World Wars I and II, after the decimations of those wars, after the Holocaust. How could anyone believe in God after the horrors of the 20th century? Uh, that's one kind of argument that's out there. But the problem with that, Jonathan, is that it doesn't stand up to the historical timeline. If the wars were the explanation for secularization across the West, then it wouldn't make sense that we see secularization in vanquished societies, uh, in victorious societies, in neutral societies like Switzerland. So that's one problem with the explanation from the wars. The other problem is even more fundamental, which is that, in fact, World War II was followed by a religious boom from 1945 into the early 1960s, across the Western world, and this is not well understood. Right. But uh, in societies that we now regard as tremendously secular places, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, etc., there was, in fact, a religious boomlet uh, following the war. And why was that? And it's in getting into that kind of question that I advance a different theory for what's going on. So what is the religious boom after World War II about? It's about a much more familiar phenomenon, which is, of course, the baby boom. And the baby boom also was a pan-Western phenomenon. It was happening in the countries across Europe. As one historian put it, Europe was becoming young again in the years immediately after the war. Now, this is not how we think of Europe, especially Western Europe today. Right. But there were about 15 years of religious revival and family revival. The baby boom itself didn't take place in a vacuum. It was preceded by a marriage boom. And so I advanced the theory that contrary to these secular theories, the predominant narratives about how the West lost God, I advanced the theory that if you look at the historical timeline in different places, different cultures, what you see 
is that religiosity depends on the vibrancy of the family. And there are a lot of reasons why I think that's so, and we can talk about those reasons. But that explanation that I advance in How the West Really Lost God turns the conventional narrative on its head. It says, no, it's not the case that people lose religion and then their families fall apart. It's the lack of vibrant families that makes the transmission of religious belief harder than it used to be. So before we take take a closer look at that, let's take a final hard look at, at the conventional story. So the conventional story to a lot of people uh, talks about the, the slow loss of faith through the 19th century, you know, Enlightenment philosophy, Darwinian scientism, um, uh, you know, scriptural criticism, and, and all of these different things that were leading towards a much more sus- secular society leading into the First World War. And of course, when you're talking about the First World War as a catalyst for faith that went in both directions there were people who found religion to make sense of all the things they'd seen and people who couldn't stomach religion because of what they'd seen what do you make of the where is the truth in the conventional theories then what impact did the wars to your mind have on religiosity in the west well i think in disrupting the ordinary rhythms of family life the wars also disrupted religious transmission now, let's go back to that idea that it was science that, you know, kicked God out of the public square or increased uh, education or rationality or this kind of thing. These are very popular explanations. We saw them most recently in the New Atheism, which proffered one or another of those examples uh, to explain why people no longer needed religion. But this idea that we got smart and then we didn't need God anymore does not hold up, Jonathan, for several reasons. One is that there are too many counterexamples to count. So, for example, in Victorian England, in London, and I quote a number of British historians to make this point, in London during the Victorian era, it was the best off and best educated who led the religious revival, who were far more likely to be found in church, uh, and who were more likely to have families of size. Again, the point is that these things are connected. So that's one example of how the dominant idea that we wised up and then we didn't need God just doesn't work. The same is true in the United States of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. Uh, The Mormons also exhibit a pattern according to which It is the best off and most educated who are the most um, regular practitioners of the faith, who are most often to be found doing good works, etc., etc. So this idea that education drives out God does not hold up, and that's really the first thing we need to understand about where we are now. It's not that we got so smart, it's not that we got so much book learning, and then we decided we could live without the, you know, holy writ. That's not what's going on in secularization. So one of the things that, that's sort of interesting about this theory is is not for me so much the idea that the sexual revolution, because it broke the family down, is the actual catalyst, is the actual culprit for secularization in the West. It's It's why the parents of the children who led the sexual revolution climbed on board with all of this so obediently. So... Yeah, David Frum wrote a book years ago on the 1970s uh, called The Decade That Shaped Everything. And he, he lists a bunch of statistics in there about how uh, in the 1960s, views on sexual behavior changed radically among the youth. And of course, in, in the 70s and then the 80s and to a degree in the 90s, you have a backlash to the chaos of the 60s. But he said that if you look at the 70s, the mid 70s to late 70s, all of the adults basically decided that the sexual behavior outside of marriage was okay as well. They didn't live that way. They didn't advocate for it. But their view was that this was something that was okay. They basically decided to cave in and and agree that the kids could do whatever they wanted to. Now, is this because the religiosity of the baby boomlet was perhaps not as deeply rooted as it could have been? Or they just didn't feel like arguing with their kids with the energy that was coming out of all of this? Or do you have a theory of how that makes sense? Yes, I have a couple of thoughts about that. One thought is that when the sexual revolution got started, 
perhaps because we are perpetually self-delusory creatures. <laughs> We're very good at deceiving ourselves. You know, I think a lot of people thought it would be okay, thought that it could be contained, thought that maybe it was okay to loosen up a little bit for at least a while. You know, maybe we can all be St. Augustine's just for a little while and then right. get good. That is to say, I don't think anybody, including within the churches, had any idea of how sweeping and ultimately catastrophic the sexual revolution was going to be. And my second point is that uh, as for those parents who, who capitulated, you know, here, as always, I think we can never underestimate uh, bullying and cowardice as a subsidiary factor. It's Cowardice is not a word that people would have used, but... Of course, a great many people, including inside the churches, caved when what they needed more than anything was to be that sign of contradiction in that moment. Right. And it's funny because we think about peer pressure and we think about the the baby boomers as young people being told, don't bend to peer pressure, don't do drugs, don't do this. But actually, I think the preceding generation, their parents' generation, were by and large bending to peer pressure in hoping that the sexual revolution wouldn't be as bad as it turned out to be, and in putting the, the you know, best smiley face on what was happening around them. So taking a closer look, how is it specifically that the breakdown of the family disrupts the transmission of religious values? Because this is a, it's a thing that I think a lot of people understand instinctively. I, I know many people who left the church in their youth, and then when they got married, uh, with the arrival of their first child, suddenly they started looking around for a church to go to. Because even people who were okay living their own life um, don't want to hedge their bets on their kids always. They want to ground their family in something. And so the church becomes a lot more attractive once they've started a family of their own, if that's what they decide to do. So how is, when, with your theory, describe how it is that, that the disruption of the family disrupts religious transmission. Well, in some ways, it's the most ordinary disruption imaginable. When you have a, a family that is split, let's say you have something like alternate custody on weekends, you have children in a situation where there isn't continuity. Right. And it's not the children's fault, but... Who knows? Mom might like taking them to church. Dad might like taking them to another church. But already you have a division introduced that's going to make the passing on of religious traditions more difficult. So that's a very homely example. At the other end of the spectrum, how does having a family incline people toward religion? Well, I think you just put your finger on the the biggest part of it, and that is the, the birth of a child. And it doesn't have to be one's own child, but across human history, and I give many examples of this in How the West Really Lost God, Mm -hmm. the arrival of a baby is a transcendent fact. It transports ordinary people into contemplation of the metaphysical and the divine. Um, There is a wonderful example from uh, Whitaker Chambers, the great... 20th century Cold War figure who wrote this yes. memory, uh, sorry, memoir called Witness, which was about leaving atheism and communism and reconverting to Christianity. And he says in that memoir that it all started for him when he was in his apartment in New York, staring at his infant daughter and staring at her ear, of all things, and realizing how perfectly made it was. And Chambers goes on and elaborates, but then he says, it was at that moment that the finger of God was laid on my head, and I began my journey back from atheism and communism. Now, we can't all write like Whitaker Chambers, but I think the experience of contemplating, especially a newborn baby or any young human being, and being transported into a different frame of mind, understanding that there might be more to this finite world than just finitude, This is a very common experience, I think. Mm -hmm. Now, where does that leave us with the sexual revolution? Well, after the revolution, first of all, you have a lot less of that. (laughs) There might be a lot more sexual activity, but there are a lot fewer babies. Yes. Partly because of contraception, partly because of abortion, 
partly because of broken homes, which tend to keep the number of kids down for obvious logistical reasons. So you have a lot fewer people who are confronted on some regular basis with the wonder that is uh, created life. At the other end of the spectrum, uh, you're also confronted a lot less often by death, which I think is obviously another once-ordinary human experience that inclines people toward religiosity. It's, It's very hard to stand over an open grave and not to wonder, is this all there is or is this not? Right. But fewer and fewer of us have that experience anymore, in part because it's not just the nuclear family that collapsed, it's also the extended family. So if you add to that geographical mobility and other um, factors that attenuate all of these family bonds, you see that the experiences of all of our ancestors, literate or illiterate, are much more uh, textured in a familial way than most modern peoples today. And that, I think, plays a major role in what we call the decline of religion, what I prefer to call rising religious illiteracy. Now, one of the uh, one of the threads that I wanted to pull on here for a minute, uh, it kind of came to me when I was listening to the lectures at the National Conservatism Conference in Washington, D.C. last summer. Uh, you were one of the speakers there. And one of the arguments going on in conservative circles right now actually has a lot to do with theories of secularization. So you'll see some conservative commentators, for example, like Ben Shapiro, responding to some of the ideas put forward in the National Conservatism Conference and saying that uh, he's a libertarian and he believes that it's up to Christians to evangelize. Uh, religion has to spread itself. And then once once you fix people's hearts, uh, once people become Christian or religious Jews or, or people of faith of some sort, uh, then the rest of it will follow. They'll, they'll straighten their lives out. Uh, you know, they'll get married. They'll start families, things like that. You know, politics is downstream from culture. Uh, and his entire premise and the premise of many libertarians is based on their theory of secularization, uh, that one thing preceded the other. But if your theory of secularization is true, then it means that actually top-down policy to actually strengthen the family, things of the sort that Viktor Orban is trying in Hungary, might actually be creating the context in which religious faith can flourish. And so this theory, which might not seem to have political implications and might only be interesting to, you know, history buffs and scholars, could potentially have a lot of a relevance to a debate going on inside conservatism right now. What are your thoughts on that? I admire Ben Shapiro. I don't agree with him about this point, because the libertarian demeanor assumes that the state is a neutral actor in these matters, and that the best argument, whether it's the argument for the family or against the family, will win. And that is not the kind of playing field we have at all. To name just one counterexample, which I think is terribly important, and which you, Jonathan, have been uh, soldiering away at in the most important way, uh, pornography. Pornography is one of the most destructive elements in society mm-hmm. if we're looking at it from the point of view of the family. And the libertarian answer to pornography is, so what? Yes. So what if every boy with a smartphone is looking at pornography from the time he's 10 years old? So what if pornography is, as it is in the United States, one of the major reasons for divorce in this country? So what? So there's this libertarian kind of magical thinking that we can't regulate these things. And by now there is a long list of these things, all of which are daggers aimed at the family. So yes, I think what Hungary is doing with these market incentives is a fascinating experiment. Uh, For example, they seem to be tying the excusing of student loan debt to family formation, Mm -hmm. preferential rates for mortgages to family formation. I have not looked at any of these experiments closely, but I think that after 60-plus years after the sexual revolution and all of the destruction of the family, uh, it's time to try things like this and to watch these experiments closely. And I will give you just one example that I think is particularly important. 
I heard a Hungarian sociologist say that when they implemented all of these family-friendly policies or policies that were meant to be family-friendly, one of the first things that happened was an incidental finding that shocked them. They said, making it easier to have babies in the very first year of doing this made the abortion rate drop by a third. Mm -hmm. Now, if that is true, that is something every pro-lifer in the world needs to know. Yes. Because if that is true, that is a clear example of how family-building policies can actually be found. And I, I think that's fascinating and possibly very important. Yeah, it, it's true because if you're talking about public policy oriented towards the creation of family to create the context in which children will be welcomed as opposed to uh, be considered a burden as well as creating a context in which faith can flourish and, and in which faith is also wanted to sort of explain all of these things. I think uh, my grandparents, for example, are 94 and 98 years old, right? And when you see how they love each other right now, you realize that this is something transcendent. The marriage bond they have is only explained when when you when you deal in religious factors. It just is that way. The same thing is true. Um, uh, your quotation of, of Whitaker Chambers, and a little bit earlier in Witness, if I'm recalling it correctly, when his wife first says to him that she... Uh, doesn't want to abort their child, which they'd been originally planning to do because they live in such they lived in such a miserable communist society. When she first tells Chambers that she doesn't want to abort the baby, he talks about this wave of euphoria that washed over him and said, "All history and reason and all of our misery fell away at the touch of a child." And only religion can really explain these things. The materialist can't. And so when you look at this, what are what are the distinct political implications right now in the United States, uh, moving away just from the libertarian argument, but even if you look at um, this hyperfixation on, on fiscal responsibility, but when they say fiscal responsibility, this is certainly true uh, in Canada and several European countries as well, they mean, well, we don't want to use the market to incentivize certain reactions because markets must remain free that we can't do the sorts of things we're doing in Hungary because that goes against free market economics. And I, I you know, grew up as a young conservative, went to CPAC and, and things like that. Um, but I think they believe in the free market much more strongly than a lot of Christians I know believe in God. Um, what is your take on how we should respond to the free market in the context of all of this? I think there is a sharp and obvious response, which is if you want to talk about free markets, what you have to consider is the role that the sexual revolution has played in the expansion of the welfare state. Because, to put it simply, no sexual revolution, no burgeoning welfare state. The welfare state bankrolls the fractured family. And that's not to fault the state. Somebody has to step in and do it when you have fatherless homes on the scale that we do today, and when you have families that are otherwise riven in the United States by the opioid epidemic, most obviously. But the welfare state would not be the size that it is if we lived in a society of robust families. And that is to say all your dreams about having lower taxes, less government intervention, and all the rest of it cannot be realized unless there is some kind of familial restoration in this country, uh, in Western countries. And with that familial restoration, I think, would go uh, a religious revival. But it will take something of that magnitude to really rein in the welfare state. You Mm -hmm. know, it's been around conservatives as long as you have, Jonathan, probably longer. Much longer, And ever since the Reagan... Yeah, the, well, let's say longer. <laughs> ever since <laughs> ever since the Reagan years, there was always that dream, right? And the press among us wanted to be libertarians because it was consistent and it was yes. simple. And we didn't simple. have to deal with the intractability of human nature. You know, we could have that consistency that's the hobgoblin of little minds. And yet, whether Democrats or Republicans or libertarians or conservatives were in power... There's been no rollback of the welfare state. Far from it. And why is that? It's because 
entitlements exist to do what robust families used to do, which is to take care of people within families that are no longer functioning well. And that is the great truth that I think libertarians don't face. It's a hard thing to look at, Mm -hmm. but it's true across our societies, and it goes directly, I think it is, it directly countermands this claim that if we just get the state out of the way and let arguments proliferate about the best way to live, uh, the best arguments will win. That's not where we are. That's not where we've been for 40 years in the conservative movement. I had a couple of historical questions uh, to frame this as well. The way I've traditionally seen this is you have the Second World War and then you have uh, the baby boom. And then in the 1960s, through a confluence of events, you've got the, the Vietnam War and the draft. You've got the sexual revolution. You've got the rock and roll music scene. You have a large number of young people who are simply fed up with the materialism that their parents have, have attempted to give them um, because their parents grew up with the, with the Depression and the war and wanted to give them more. And the sexual revolution and the accompanying revolution is, is so radical that there's this massive pushback, starting with Law & Order Nixon culminating uh, in Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. And then we have this sort of break in the 90s where conservatives kind of went a bit nuts uh, during the Clinton years. The Clintons were bad enough without having to make up all the things that were invented about them. But then it looked like in 2000, there was sort of this return to sanity. The second Bush showed up. Um, he was an evangelical Christian from Texas. And and it, it seems like with, with Obama's election, things have started to fall apart. When Obama got elected, he, he hadn't evolved yet on same-sex marriage. And a couple of years later, he's, he's, he's mentioning transgenderism uh, in his, his second inaugural address. And so things seem to have escalated incredibly quickly. So was the, was, the, was the backlash or perceived backlash in the 70s, 80s, and to a degree the 90s, was it an illusion? Um, is it sort of, the, was, was the Bush years the last show of strength for social conservatives and, and religious Americans? Or how do you see um, this sweep of an history unfolding? I start from the premise that we don't want to make the mistake that the Marxists and all of their friends make. We don't want to be historicists. We don't <laughs> right. want to talk about the wrong side of history. We don't want to talk about inevitability. And paradoxically, even though I think religious, anti-religious discrimination has gotten worse over the last 20 years especially, uh, and we could cite chapter and verse about that, but I think the listeners are pretty familiar with the, all of that stuff. Paradoxically, I think the chance for social conservatism to break through is probably stronger than it has been in a long time. And that is partly because of a widespread sense that uh, the establishment has failed, the establishment left and right has failed. If the establishment of the left were working, we wouldn't have a socialist as one of the leading contenders for president in the United States. Right. That's something that until very recently everyone found unthinkable. And if the establishment of the right were commanding loyalty, we certainly would not have President Trump in office. So the question is, why this crisis of authority? The reason I'm hopeful about social conservatism is that although it may be a minority position, and although not everyone uh, agrees, obviously, there is an authenticity there that I think can resonate at a time when it looks like the lodestars of other people have been, you know, venality, self-enhancement, materiality, and other, you know, not-so-elevated motives. I think there is a not only an authenticity, but a consistency in the socially conservative approach to the world that starts with the idea that uh, we are not our own makers. Uh, we're children of God. We have our limitations including and not limited to what sex we're born into, etc. I think the more that our culture becomes unmoored on these very basic questions, the more there is appeal, um, an enduring appeal, uh, on the part of an argument that puts forth a different view, a more elevated view of the human person. I think there's intrinsic appeal especially as we see that younger people are more pro-life than their parents were. Mm -hmm. 
I think there's intrinsic appeal to an argument that says, we're better than that. We're better than abortion on demand. Look, this wrongs us as creatures. It, it wrongs the creatures we do it to. We're better than that. So I think precisely because there is this crisis of political authority, there is a crisis of the family, and there is a crisis of religious authority that we haven't even touched on, but precisely because of these intertwined crises, a movement that can speak authentically to the human heart, I think, has a better chance of breaking through now than it has for a long time. And for that reason, we should be hopeful. One of the things that's 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 very interesting about about this analysis, and and I appreciate you saying that there's a reason to be hopeful because I remember when I hit the last chapter of your book, "It's Dangerous to Believe," which I believe came out in 2016. That prognosis <laughs> seemed pretty grim. Um, and and when you're when you're looking all the way back and you're making the case that it was the sexual revolution that really caused the West to lose God rather than the, the conventional narrative of, of, of the world wars and science and, and, and what have you. How would you explain how the sexual revolution took place? Because one of the questions I get very frequently when I'm having discussions about this as well is, how did an entire generation just up and reject the traditions of their parents? Uh, especially parents who had been good to them. Uh, you know, parents who had tried to give them everything. Parents who had weathered the Great Depression uh, and the Second World War. There's obvious uh, exceptions, and I'm obviously uh, stereotyping to a degree, but what did make a, a, a generation of young people who seemingly had everything uh, reject everything? Well, of course, some historians would point to all of the popular messages that were circulating, the Playboy philosophy, the Helen Gurley Brown at Cosmopolitan, you know, this, this all-sex-all-the-time message that was being pushed out commercially as well. And that's obviously a contributing factor, but I don't think it's the main factor, Jonathan. I think what happened is that the pill came along, and it was a massive technological shock, because for the first time in human history, there was the possibility that women, and hence men, could know sex without consequence. Nothing like that on the scale that the pill promised had ever happened. Of course, people had always known how to regulate births by abstinence. People had had devices before, but nothing like this flooding of the marketplace uh, with the pill and related technologies. And I think the result was whatever their intentions, um, you know, people sort of lost their minds. It was a big party. And it promised to end someday, again, back to Augustine, God make me good, just not yet. Yeah. And I think that's what peeled away the filial piety when you ask why people listen to their parents anymore. It was that powerful. And the peer pressure became that powerful. And again, the more I look at this, the more I come back to the idea of self-delusion. Nobody wanted to believe that this thing should be resisted, because it was far too tempting to embrace it. And that includes within the churches. Within the churches that have tried to accommodate themselves to the sexual revolution, we have also seen collapse. That revolution is the number one um, thing with which the church is locked in mortal combat. There's just no doubt about it after these 60 years. When you look at, at how this unfolded, one of the things that I, I, I've, I've wanted to ask you for a while, I've been working, uh, last year I spent a lot of time analyzing what happened in Ireland during the 2018 abortion referendum. I was there for, for a couple of weeks with some of my colleagues working with some of the pro-life uh, organizations there like Youth Defense and Life Institute. And I've just finished a, a small book on, on the history of the Irish pro-life movement. And one of the questions I was trying to answer when I was doing the research was, is it actually possible for a largely secular post-sexual revolution state to still protect pre-born human rights? And the reason for that was Ireland was always this place that the pro-life movement could point to as a great victory. You had a place where abortion was, was illegal. Uh, its abortion rate was 1 in 19, because some women still did fly to England. You, you had no horrible back alley abortions in fact they like they looked for one the abortion activists would have loved a case like that to splash across uh across the news but in 35 years they couldn't find examples of women 
who had died as a result of, of, of a botched abortion or having been denied an abortion until they finally had to use, uh, had to lie about a case. They had to lie about the case of Savita Halepanavar when she died of septicemia, not because she was denied an abortion. And Ireland had one of the best maternal um, health care rates in the world. It was better than England, where abortion was legal. And so one of the reasons the loss of Ireland's pro-life laws was so crushing to the pro-life movement is it deprived us of the country that we would point to and say, look, abortion's illegal there, and none of the horrible things that you claim will happen if abortion's illegal happen there. In fact, they have a sexual revolution, they have women in the workforce, uh, but they just have a rock-bottom abortion rate. They have way more babies. Babies with Down syndrome aren't eliminated in the womb. Uh, and then 2018 happened, and abortion on demand has now come to Ireland, despite the fact that Ireland had proven all of the abortion activists were wrong. And so with that, that microcosm in mind, do you think it's possible for a post-sexual uh, revolution secular state to protect preborn human rights, or does all of this sort of come as a package? It comes as a package. And to give an example, let's talk about Ireland. Of course, Ireland's turn to abortion is devastating and tragic, uh, beginning but not limited to uh, the unborn. But at the same time, it did not surprise me, after looking at the data that are in the book, How the West Really Lost God. And the reason is that Ireland was the last country in Western Europe land in which large families continued after they collapsed in the 60s, almost everywhere else. Right. And yet, and yet, when the Irish stopped having families of size, their fertility rate collapsed at twice the rate of just about everyone else. In other words, it was like a switch was thrown. And suddenly, not only were people not having six or seven or eight children, they were having almost no children at all. And... That datum, which is in a footnote in How the West Really Lost God, uh, was something I saw several years before the legalization of abortion in Ireland. And when I saw that, I said to myself, abortion in Ireland is about to be legalized. The reason is that we see the same pattern over and over in Western countries. First comes contraception. When it is adopted en masse, shortly afterwards, Abortion is legalized because it has to be as a backstop. It, mm -hmm. it just logically has to be in a society where the majority of people already have the idea that a pregnancy is a mistake and a problem. So you see that same pattern in Chile, for example, where the legalization of abortion shocked people. Again, looking at the data and how the West really lost God, I found that tragic, but I did not find the Chilean situation shocking. Because once the majority of a society is okay with contraception, abortion follows. Um, this is a pattern that we see over and over, and for that reason, the case of Ireland is not shocking. Whatever else it is, it's not shocking. This leads directly into one of the, 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 the points that you wanted to touch on, which is the crisis of religious authority. Because one of the things I found in my research about how things in Ireland unfolded was very much that once the, the Catholic Church, through the abuse crisis and a number of other uh, endless crises in Ireland, because the, uh, the Irish Catholic Church had essentially been asked to fulfill a government role by the state when they started due to the fact that they didn't have the money on hand themselves. But when you're in charge of a lot of things, it also means that every scandal that takes place in one of those institutions gets laid at your feet, which enormously damaged the, the reputation of the Catholic Church to the point that during the referendum, uh, uh, some clergy didn't speak out, not because they were too cowardly, but simply because they felt it would do more harm than good if they did. So to what degree has a crisis of, of um, religious authority played into all of this? Well, there's probably never a great moment in time to have a sexual abuse crisis that reaches from the lowest levels of your hierarchy to some of the top levels of your hierarchy. That said, the timing of this one, and not only in Ireland, really could not have been worse. It's the worst possible moment for the Church to be making own goals of this kind. 
uh, which suggests that it's not the Church that is making these own goals of this kind. There's no doubt that the sexual abuse crisis in Ireland gave a lot of fed-up people a very emotional reason to walk away from the Church. But again, looking underneath that to the human heart, to our capacity for Mm self-deception, you have to wonder, that many decades into the sexual revolution in Ireland, who's really looking at this from the point of view of, but what is the truth? Right. Leaving aside human fallibility, what is the truth in these matters? What are we made for? Are we made for anything? Is it all right to snuff ourselves out? Is it all right to stop having families, stop believing in our civilization, stop believing in everything our church says? So I just mean to say, I think it's more nuanced than it appears. And I also think that, again, the root of this problem is the embrace of the sexual revolution, even more than any abuses that were being committed by clergy. And I say that for the reason that the the sexual revolution um, pre-existed, that it was here before we had these exposures of what was going on, whether it was in Ireland or the United States. Um, And the sexual revolution will continue to be a problem if every last offending priest is swept from the Church, as I hope happens, and I know you hope happens, if we are left with a small remnant of clergy, all of whom can be trusted, even if all of that were to come to pass, there would still remain the problem that the sexual revolution holds up an idea of man and woman that is absolutely at odds with the teaching of the Catholic Church. When you when you move move beyond Ireland and you look just across the Western world for a moment, so for example, my grandparents are, are from the Netherlands. Uh, originally, they were they were they were born there, lived through World War II there, immigrated to North America afterwards. And if you look at, at how completely and totally the sexual revolution has conquered countries like the Netherlands, which was once a a staunch and conservative Calvinist republic, and now uh, some Dutch Reformed pastors come out and and sign the Nashville Statement, and you know uh, half of Holland is in an uproar for a week because they can't believe that they're still sharing in the country, you know, with knuckle draggers that believe the same thing everybody in the West believed. Uh, you know, for 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 a couple of millennium, uh, you you look at other places uh, as well, including the United Kingdom, and there's what what always strikes me is that in so many places there's so little backlash uh, to the sexual revolution. It's it's been accepted so totally, right? Boris Johnson is being presented as this sort of conservative person. He was pushing for. Um, the, he was pushing for same-sex marriage before David Cameron got the idea, and he purchased an abortion for his mistress, and this was on the front pages of the papers, right? He's a, an active participant in this revolution and an advocate for it. And so that's one of the reasons I find traveling in Europe that people find the United States so strange. So why, in your view, is it that while the sexual revolution has conquered so thoroughly in so many places across the West, uh, the battles brought about by the sexual revolution have paralyzed the United States, polarized the United States, and basically dominate at this point virtually every single political election from coast to coast? Well, I think your way of phrasing it is sharp and correct. The problem is there is fierce resistance to acknowledging this as a problem. And the reason is that, face it, everybody is implicated. It's not going to be very many years before nobody can remember what the world was like before the sexual revolution. That knowledge will pass out of existence, at least in the West. To say everybody's implicated, of course, doesn't mean everyone's equally implicated. But there is always the desire to please and the desire to keep one's thoughts to oneself, let alone at the national level, where it would be political suicide, I think, at least in this moment, for any politician to state the obvious, which is that the sexual revolution is responsible for a lot of what ails us in the Western world. That said, you know, this is a pretty big lie to keep suppressed forever. Uh, And I think it comes out in very interesting secular ways. For example... If you look at climate change fervor, if you look at the extremes of that movement, or sometimes just the -the run-of-the-mill rhetoric, 
this movement, which emanates from the most desiccated societies in the West and the, the, the ones that are burning themselves out fastest, I have in mind Sweden, for example, um, where there's below-level replacement, where there are not robust families, families of size, extended families, thing of the past, et cetera, et cetera. You see these, you know, fearful ideas that the, the world is ending and somebody's got to do something about it and everything is doom and gloom. And Jonathan, I think there is a truth in that kind of rhetoric, but it's misplaced. I think the truth is, yes, Something about the Western world is ending for a lot of Westerners. A lot of Westerners have gone without meaning to at all uh, and radically changed their habitats and cannot live in the way that all of their ancestors lived, with familial ties and the certainty of religion. So, yes, something has gone very badly wrong in the West, and I think Different people in the culture pick up on this in different ways. But again, they would not think of applying this in its most obvious, um, to its most obvious object, which is, of course, the sexual revolution. Instead, we have these millenarian apocalyptic ideas that are just kind of free floating. You know, is the election of Donald Trump the end of America? (laughs) Is it the beginning of a new tyranny, right? We, We hear all of this bombastic rhetoric. And my point is just to say, in a funny way, it is coming from a real place. It is coming from this sense that we have gone and done something to ourselves that's going to be very difficult to undo, and that's causing a lot of suffering. But we shouldn't look for the origins of that thing uh, in the places that secular authorities are telling us to look. I keep on hoping that as the obvious implications of the sexual revolution um, come to the surface that we can point to things and say, see, this happened. We said this was going to happen. Now can you admit we had a point? But increasingly I worry that we're going to get blamed for those things as well. So, for example, if you look at the case of of um, children who are transitioning early due to the transgender phenomenon, and there's all kinds of scandals uh, breaking out. There's been a bunch of lawsuits filed in the United Kingdom now. I'm very interested to see how those turn out. But you already have, you know, beautiful, were once beautiful young girls, 18, 19, 20, who've had double mastectomies. Um, one of them in, in Standpoint magazine recently said, I wish somebody had told me not to get castrated at 21. She's already had um, had her, her reproductive um, system essentially essentially removed in this pursuit. And I used to look at these sorts of things and think, okay, um, it's it, it, it's awful that some of the guinea pigs have to be so destroyed by this experiment before we can admit what this experiment was all about. But at the same time, when people see that, we, we can call this whole thing off. And, and then I, I make the mistake of engaging with some of the trans activists on Twitter sometimes, and every time one of these stories pops up, they'll say things like, it's, it's people like you who create transphobia um, that leads people to make these decisions or not think that transition was the right thing for them. You guys are literally killing trans kids, etc. And then I start to wonder, is, is this actually going to prove our point? Or are they just going to find a way to blame us for that as well? And what, what, do you have any thoughts on the way that might go? Yes. I am not sure how many of us will live to see it. I don't think social conservatism will get credit for calling this one right in the lifetimes of some of us. And yet, manifestly, this is a perfect example of what I'm describing. Manifestly, it's we were talking about anything but the demands of the sexual revolution, the idea of mutilating children, let's say minors, uh, in the name of some unproven science, would have us dangling handcuffs at those doctors. And that would be the right instinct. After all, as selfless and wonderful as most doctors are, we know they are not infallible. The United States just lived through the opioid crisis. And in that crisis, for all of the wonderful doctors, there were also doctors who behaved unscrupulously and unethically and did things that killed their patients and destroyed their patients' lives, obviously not intentionally. But that's the first analogy that leads to mind uh, in the matter of chemically and surgically 
permanently altering these children in the name of transgenderism. And if we were talking about anything but something related to the revolution, I think there would be society-wide consensus on that. There may even be majority sentiment on that that is afraid of expressing itself. Well, it, I, I think you're right on that. I think if you tried to, it all depends on how you ask the poll questions, as you know. And But I think that if you pulled people and asked them, do you think that men can get pregnant, you, the consensus would be rather large, even though there are many politicians who don't have the guts to say that sentence into a microphone. Um, on, on the subject of not realizing the truth when it stares you in the face, one of the things I found interesting about the Me Too movement, for example, is that essentially it's a, it's a cultural admission that the sexual revolution has failed, that some barriers are needed. Uh, this applies to you know campuses as well, where they're setting up these tribunals and essentially trying to reimpose uh, some kind of sexual framework, some sort of, some set of rules that people have to abide by. And the key difference between the rules they're attempting to impose and the Christian rules is that in, in those rules, there's no redemption, there's no forgiveness, right? Forgiveness. Uh, Christianity, of course, has a mechanism to be forgiven for for, for sexual sins. And the Me Too movement doesn't. Do you think there's a chance that in the context of something like the Me Too movement, and and, and this is going to be just one of many scenarios that unfolds as the sexual revolution continues to metastasize, that the Christians have a real opportunity here to point out, by the way, you're, you're, you're trying to rig up a facsimile, you know, garbage version of what we already had, right? You tore the fence down before you knew what it penned in. Maybe we should build the fence again. Well, I think a lot of people have been trying to connect those dots and speak to the secular world about exactly that. Uh, I can think of numerous such thinkers. But the point I would like to make about this, Jonathan, goes back to the world we have inherited after the revolution. Because I think there is something here that unites both the... uh, cacophony that is the Me Too movement and the cacophony about transgenderism, and it goes like this. When those of us who critique the sexual revolution talk about it, we're not just talking about some abstraction. We're talking about the fallout of this thing. And one form of fallout, which we've been mentioning on and off throughout, is that families are smaller, families are broken, the extended family no longer exists. For most people, uh, people are growing up without siblings, more and more, uh, without siblings of the opposite sex, without siblings of the same sex, without cousins, uncles, aunts, and so on with the litany. Now, why does this matter? It matters for reasons that I get into in my latest book, Primal Screams, where I talk about how animals learn and surveying the animal kingdom and throwing in a lot of fun facts about everything from meerkats to whales to Mm -hmm. certain insects. Animals learn by watching other animals, mainly in their families, mainly from their siblings and their mothers. And this is how, for example, cats learn to get out of trees. You know, this gets very prosaic. It's how certain whales learn to beach themselves to catch animals that are on the land and then get off the beach so that they don't, you know, suffocate from uh, too much air. So the point here is deep. We have put ourselves in a situation where we have many, many fewer people to learn from. Um, Abortion has subtracted siblings, sons, and daughters out of families, and we have few, you know, siblings, uh, cousins, uncles, extended networks from whom we learn things like, what is it like to be a man? What is it like to be a woman? So a lot of people are learning these things online instead of in real life, because they do not have the backup. They don't have the critical mass of related people in their lives from whom to learn. And this, to me, may be the the scariest legacy of the revolution of all, that I think there are a lot of people who are functioning in the most borderline way because they haven't learned the most essential human lessons thanks to the truncated world that they live in after the sexual revolution. And that, I think, is going to be a problem for a long time to come. What do we do about it? Yes, we can call out the Me Too movement 
and say, as you did, look, um, this institution called the church that's been around a little longer than me, too, <laughs> had figured out some rules and regulations a little while before you did, and ours are better. Um, I think that's true. Uh, but I also think we need to be aware of the damage out there and how, um, in some ways, post-rational a lot of the people around us are uh, because they have not had the opportunity to learn from other people in their lives and in the context of their family in the way that we social creatures are meant to learn. I guess a final question um, on on all of this, and and for those of uh, those of our listeners here who who want to pull in the threads that you just mentioned, please do go back and listen to our discussion uh, on your new book, Primal Screams, uh, which covers a lot of that territory. The final question would be: In all of your research, have you ever come across a society that endured this level of familial destruction and found God again? You know, sometimes we have to cut ourselves a little slack and realize that this experiment, on the scale that we are witnessing it, this experiment of the sexual revolution is very new in human history. We have seen examples of family collapse, mainly in aristocratic families, from the late Roman Empire, for example, uh, in certain monarchies, We've seen family collapse before, but we've never seen anything on this scale. So not having answers to it is not exactly our fault. <laughs> I think we have to have faith, you know, both capital F and small f. Um, I know that in my own travels, and I'm sure in yours, you come across people all the time who are pulled into the orbit of Christianity, precisely because they are tired of the low-down, dirty, um, crabbed view of humanity yes. that's on offer everywhere else, and they are looking for something better. They know that they're made for something better. Uh, I've spoken, for instance, with young women, uh, the product of secular education, um, non-religious, who, to a person hate pornography, for example. They know that they are meant for something better than, you know, second best to what their boyfriends are watching. And it's in precisely that brokenness, I think, that we find a way out of this mess, and that I think a lot of individuals, one by one, are already finding their ways out of this mess. So that, too, is a reason for hope. And again, to connect it to the pro-life movement, the fact that younger people are increasingly pro-life, tells us that at least some aspects of this experiment that we've been conducting on ourselves for 60 years have now gone far enough that there is a reaction against them, and I predict there will be more of that to come. Well, on that note, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss all these things with us. Thank you, Jonathan. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with scholar and author Mary Aberstadt on how the West really lost God. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the show. We hope you'll check out past shows. You can look at lifesightnews.com, go to SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts, you can get this show. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next week.